Hello, my name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions. And I'm Proven Paradox, a guy with a lot of questions. And you're listening to Bright on Buddhism, a podcast where we discuss East Asian Buddhism, answering listener-submitted questions from listeners just like you, and introducing concepts of Buddhism that you may or may not be familiar with in a casual, conversational setting. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week, we'll be reading and discussing the Tathagata Garbha Sutra in its entirety. For those that have listened to previous episodes, you'll know that Tathagata Garbha is a Sanskrit word that we typically equate with Buddha nature. However, the more literal translation is Buddha womb. The basic idea, however, is not that different. This doctrine holds that in each and every sentient being, there is a Buddha womb, which is gestating perfect Buddhahood. In simple terms, this is the idea that every single sentient being has the potential to reach Buddhahood given enough time. This is a very popular and influential Mahayana Buddhist teaching that challenges the earlier teachings that there were those who, because they did not practice or study the teaching, would never become Buddhas, even in infinite lifetimes. This text is said to have originated with the Mahasamgika sect of early Buddhism, but unfortunately, the text no longer exists in the original Sanskrit and has survived only by Tibetan and Chinese translations. Today, we are reading the Michael Zimmerman translation from the Tibetan. We hope you enjoy. Homage to all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. At one time, I heard the following. In the hot months, ten years after his complete awakening, the Exalted One was staying on the mountain Vulture Peak near Rajagriha in the Chandanagarbha Pavilion of Ratnachatra Palace, together with a great community of monks, fully a hundred thousand in number. The monks were both Shravakas under training and those no longer in need of training. Almost all of them were honorable ones whose contaminations were stopped, who were free of defilements, who had attained mastery, with completely liberated minds and insight, of noble race, powerful like great elephants, whose duties were done, whose tasks were performed, who had laid down their burden, who had reached their own goal, in whom all the fetters to existence were eliminated, whose minds were completely liberated by perfect knowledge, who had attained excellent supremacy in the control over the whole mind. Among the fully hundred thousand monks were the venerable Mahakashapa, the venerable Uruvilva Kashapa, the venerable Nadakashapa, the Venerable Gaya Kashapa, the Venerable Mahakatyayana, the Venerable Mahakaustila, the Venerable Vakula, the Venerable Revata, the Venerable Sabuti, the Venerable Purna Maitrayani Putra, the Venerable Vagisha, the Venerable Shariputra, the Venerable Mahamadgalyayana, the Venerable Ajnatakaundinya, the Venerable Udayin, the Venerable Rahula, the Venerable Nanda, the Venerable Upananda, the Venerable Ananda, and others. Also accompanying him were bodhisattva mahasattvas who had come together from various Buddha fields as many as the sands of sixty Ganges rivers. They were all of them only one lifetime away from perfect awakening and had attained the five great supernatural faculties, the ten powers, and the four kinds of self-assurance, had venerated many myriads of Buddhas, and had set in motion the wheel of the Dharma, which never regresses. It happened that sentient beings of immeasurable, innumerable world systems attained non-regression in their striving after supreme and perfect awakening from hearing their names only. Among them were the Bodhisattva Mahasattvas, Dhammamati, Simamati, Vyagramati, Artamati, Ratnamati, Pravaramati, Chandra Prabha, Ratna Chandra Prabha, Purna Chandra Prabha, Mahavikramin, Aprameya Vikramin, Ananta Vikramin, Trilokya Vikramin, Achala Prada Vikramin, Mahastama Prapta, Avalokiteshvara, Gandahastin, Gandharati, 
Gandhara Tishri, Sri Garba, Surya Garba, Ketu, Maha Ketu, Vimala Ketu, Ananta Ratna Yashti, Tyakta Ratna Yashti, Vimala Ratna Yashti, Pramodya Raja, Sada Pramodita, Ratnapani, Gaganaganja, Meru, Sumeru, Mahameru, Gunaratna Loka, Dharanishvara Raja, Dharanimdara, Sarva Sattva Rogani Vartana, Pramodya Manas, Kina Manas, Akina, Jyotishkara, Chandana, Ihavi Vartana, Aprameya Bigarji Tasvara, Bodhi Samutapana, Amogadarshin, Sarva Dharma Vashartin, the Bodhisattva Mahasattva Maitreya, Mandrushri as a young man, and other Bodhisattva Mahasattvas, as many as the sands of sixty Ganges rivers. Also accompanying him were an immeasurable number of divinities, snake gods, spirits, celestial musicians, demons, man-birds, man-horses, serpent beings, human beings, and further non-human beings. Then, after the Exalted One had been surrounded and honored by many hundreds of thousands of assemblies, he was honored, venerated, worshipped, and revered by kings, chief ministers, guild leaders, noblemen, ministers, citizens, and country folk. At that time, after having been served food, the Exalted One withdrew for meditation in that same Chandanagarbha pavilion, whereupon through the power of the Buddha appeared myriads of lotuses coming out from the Chandanagarbha pavilion, the myriads of petals as large as the wheels of carts, colorful and not yet open. The lotuses then rose into the sky, covered this whole Buddha field, and remained there like a jewel canopy. In each calyx of the lotuses was seated, cross-legged, a body of a tatagata, emitting hundreds of thousands of rays of light and visible everywhere and all the lotuses were opened up in blossom. Then, by the supernatural power of the Buddha, all the petals of the lotuses, without exception, became dark, deep black, putrid and disgusting, and no longer pleasing. But in the calyxes of the lotuses, the bodies of the Tathagatas, sitting cross-legged and emitting hundreds of thousands of rays of light, were still visible everywhere. Further, this whole Buddha field became filled with the rays of light from the bodies of the Tathagatas sitting in the calyxes of these lotuses. This Buddha field became extremely beautiful during that time. Then at that time the whole multitude of bodhisattvas and the four assemblies were extremely astonished and filled with pleasurable excitement. But after seeing that supernatural display of the Exalted One, they became uncertain and questioned themselves. What is the reason that the petals of all these myriads of lotuses became so unsightly, and that their stalks too became unsightly, disgusting and not pleasing, whereas in the calyxes of the lotuses each body of the Tathagatas is still sitting cross-legged, and in that, they emit hundreds of thousands of rays of light, visible everywhere, as something extremely beautiful. Thereupon the Exalted One motioned to the entire multitude of bodhisattvas and the four assemblies who had become uncertain to come closer. At that time, there was a certain bodhisattva mahasattva named Vajramati, who had also gathered with the others in the Chandanagarbha pavilion. Then the Exalted One said to the bodhisattva mahasattva Vajramati, Son of good family, venture to question the Tathagata, the honorable one, and perfectly awakened one, with reference to an exposition on the Dharma. At the Exalted One's permission, the Bodhisattva Mahasattva Vajramati, realizing that the world with its gods, humans and demons, and all the Bodhisattvas and the four assemblies were anxious with doubts, then asked him the following. Exalted One, what is the reason this entire world system is covered with these myriads of such unsightly and putrid lotuses, yet in their centers sit cross-legged bodies of Tathagatas emitting hundreds of thousands of rays of light, invisible everywhere, and now myriads of living beings, seeing the bodies of the Tathagatas, raise their joined palms in homage. Then, at that time, the Bodhisattva Vajramati uttered these verses. 
Myriads of Buddhas are seated motionless in the center of lotuses, with such supernatural powers you display them. Never before have I seen anything like this. The sight of the leaders emitting thousands of rays of light, covering this entire Buddha field with their splendor, and wonderfully displaying a facile mastery of the dharmas, is constantly beautiful. There, in the center of unsightly lotuses, with disgusting petals and stalks, sit tatagatas, as if they had the nature of a jewel. Why have you, with your supernatural powers, created these manifestations? I see Buddhas equal in number to the sands of the Ganges River, and I see the exquisite manifestations of the Tathagata's supernatural powers. Never before have I witnessed such a miracle like this one existing right now. I implore the highest among humans, the divine, to teach. I implore him to explain the reason for his miraculous display. I implore him to speak with solicitude in order to benefit the world. I implore him to remove the doubts of all embodied beings. Then, the Exalted One said to the whole multitude of Bodhisattvas, including the Bodhisattva Mahasattva Vajramati, and others, Sons of good family, there is a sutra of great extent called Atatagata within. In order to teach it, the Tathagata has produced these signs which appear to you. Listen therefore closely, be attentive, and I will teach you. Just so, replied the Bodhisattva Mahasattva Vajramati, and the whole multitude of Bodhisattvas to the Exalted One. Thereby acquiescing, and the Exalted One spoke. Sons of good family, just as these unsightly, putrid, disgusting, and no longer pleasing lotuses, supernaturally created by the Tathagata, and the pleasing and beautiful form of a Tathagata sitting cross-legged in each of the calyxes of these lotuses, emitting hundreds of thousands of rays of light, are such that when they are recognized by gods and humans, these latter then pay homage and also show reverence to them. In the same way, sons of good family, also the Tathagata, the honorable one and perfectly awakened one, perceives with his insight knowledge and tathagata vision that all the various sentient beings are encased in the myriads of defilements such as desire anger misguidedness longing and ignorance and sons of good family he perceives that inside sentient beings encased in defilements sit many tathagatas cross-legged and motionless endowed with myself like a tathagata's knowledge and vision and the tathagata having perceived inside those sentient beings, defiled by all defilements, the true nature of a tathagata motionless and unaffected by any of the states of existence, then says, those tathagatas are just like me. Sons of good family. In this way a tathagata's vision is admirable, because with it he perceives that all sentient beings have a tathagata within. Sons of good family. It is like the example of a person endowed with divine vision, who would use this divine vision to look at such unsightly and putrid lotuses, not blooming and not open, and would owing to his vision recognize that there are tathagatas sitting cross-legged in their center, in the calyx of each lotus, and knowing that, he would then desire to look at the forms of the tathagatas. He would then peel away and remove the unsightly, putrid, and disgusting lotus petals in order to thoroughly clean the forms of the tathagatas. In the same way, sons of good family, with the vision of a Buddha, the tathagata also perceives that all sentient beings have a tathagata within, and therefore teaches the Dharma to them in order to peel away the sheaths of those sentient beings encased in such defilements as desire, misguidedness, longing, and ignorance. And after those sentient beings have realized the Dharma, their Tathagatas inside are established in the perfection of the Tathagatas. Sons of good family, the essential law of all things is this. Whether or not the Tathagatas appear in the world, all these sentient beings at all times have a Tathagata within. Sons of good family, in view of this fact, and because sentient beings are encased in the disgusting sheaths of defilements, the Tathagata, the Honorable One, and Perfectly Awakened One, teaches the Dharma to Bodhisattvas and also leads them to put faith in this revelatory activity in order to destroy their sheaths of defilements, 
and thereby also completely purify the Tathagata knowledge contained within. When in this connection the Bodhisattva Mahasattvas who assiduously apply themselves to these dharmas have completely become free from all defilements and impurities, then they will be designated Tathagata, Honorable One and Perfectly Awakened One, and they will also perform all the tasks of a Tathagata. It is as if there were a disgusting lotus whose unsightly sheath-like petals were not opened out, yet whose inside containing a Tathagata were unpolluted by the petals, and a person with divine vision perceived this. If a person peeled away its petals, in the center, the body of a victorious one would appear, and no impurity would then arise any longer from this victorious one. He would appear as a victorious one in the whole world. In the same way, I also see bodies of victorious ones placed in the midst of all living beings, encased in myriads of defilements, that are just like the disgusting sheaths of a lotus. And because I also desire to remove the defilements of those sentient beings, I am continually teaching the Dharma to the wise, thinking, May these sentient beings become awakened, and I purify their defilements so that they may become victorious ones. My Buddha vision is like that person's divine vision. With the vision of a Buddha, I see that in all sentient beings, the body of a victorious one is established, and in order to purify them, I preach the Dharma. Sons of good family, again, it is as if there were, for example, a round honeycomb hanging from the branch of a tree, shielded on all sides by a hundred thousand bees and filled with honey. And a person desiring honey, and knowing of the honey within, would then, with skill in the application of appropriate means, expel all the living beings, the bees, and then use the honey in the way honey is to be used. In the same way, sons of good family, all sentient beings without exception are like a honeycomb. With a Tathagata's mental vision, I realize that their Buddhahood within is shielded on all sides by myriads of defilements and impurities. Sons of good family, just as a skillful person by his knowledge realizes that there is honey inside a honeycomb shielded on all sides by myriads of bees, in the same way I realize with my Tathagata's mental vision that Buddhahood is without exception shielded on all sides in all sentient beings by myriads of defilements and impurities. And, sons of good family, just like the person who removed the bees, also the Tathagata, with skill in the application of appropriate means, removes sentient beings' defilements and impurities from their Buddhahood within, such as desire, anger, misguidedness, pride, insolence, jealous disparagement, rage, malice, envy, avarice, and so on. He then teaches the Dharma in such a way so that those sentient beings will not again become polluted and harmed by the defilements and impurities. When their Tathagata's mental vision has become purified, they will perform the tasks of a Tathagata in the world. Sons of good family, this is how I see all sentient beings with my completely pure vision of a Tathagata. Then, at that time, the Exalted One uttered these verses. It is as if there were a honeycomb here shielded on all sides and hidden by bees, but a person desiring honey would perceive the honey within and expel the bees. Also here in the same way, all sentient beings in the triple states of existence are like the honeycomb. The many myriads of defilements are like the bees, yet I see that inside the defilements there exists a Tathagata. Also, in order to clean this Buddha, I remove the defilements just as the person desiring honey expels the bees. Using appropriate means, I teach here so that the myriads of defilements will be eradicated. I do this in order to induce those sentient beings, after becoming Tathagatas, to continually perform the tasks of a Tathagata throughout the world, and with readiness in speech to teach the Dharma, which is like a pot of honey from bees. Sons of good family, again, it is like the example of winter rice, barley, millet, or monsoon rice, whose kernel is shielded all around by a husk. As long as the kernel has not come out of its husk, it cannot serve the function of solid, soft, and delicious food. But sons of good family, 
It can serve this function very well once some men or women, desiring that these grains serve their function as food and drink in hard, soft, or other forms, after having it reaped and threshed, remove the coarse sheath of the husk and the fine outer skin. Sons of good family, in the same way that people are aware of the precious kernel within the husk, so too the Tathagata perceives with his Tathagata vision that Tathagatahood, Buddhahood, awakening by one's own power, wrapped in the skin of the sheaths of defilements, is always present in every sentient being. Sons of good family, the Tathagata also removes the skin of the sheaths of defilements, purifies the Tathagatahood within them, and teaches the Dharma to sentient beings, thinking, How can these sentient beings become free from all the skins of the sheaths of defilements so that they will be designated in the world as Tathagata, honorable one and perfectly awakened one? Then, at that time, the exalted one uttered these verses. It is like monsoon rice or winter rice, or like millet or barley, which, as long as they are in the husk, cannot serve their function. But having been pounded and their husks having been removed, they can serve all their various functions. However, the kernels in the husks cannot serve any function for sentient beings. In the same way that people are aware of the precious kernel within the husk, I see that the ground of Buddhahood of all sentient beings is covered by defilements. And then I teach the Dharma in order to purify them and let them attain Buddhahood quickly, in order that they may quickly become victorious ones. I teach the Dharma so that, like mine, their true nature, which, though wrapped up in hundreds of defilements, is in all sentient beings, becomes purified in all of them. Sons of good family, again, it is like the example of a round nugget of gold belonging to someone who had walked along a narrow path and whose nugget had fallen into a place of decaying substances and filth, a place full of putrid excrement. In that place of decaying substances and filth full of putrid excrement, the gold nugget, having been overpowered by various impure substances, would have become invisible, and would have remained there for ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, a hundred, or a thousand years. But it would, though surrounded by impure substances, never be affected by them, owing to its imperishable nature. Because of the covering of impure substances, however, it could not be of use to any sentient being. Sons of good family, if then a divinity with divine vision looked at that round gold nugget, the divinity would direct a person, O oh man, go and clean that gold of excellent value there, which is only externally covered with all sorts of decaying substances and filth, and use the gold in the way gold is to be used. In this simile, sons of good family, what is called all sorts of decaying substances and filth is a designation for the different kinds of defilements. What is called gold nugget is a designation for what is not subject to perishability, i.e., the true nature of living beings. What is called divinity, with divine vision, is a designation for the Tathagata, the honorable one and perfectly awakened one. Sons of good family, in the same way, also the Tathagata, the honorable one, the perfectly awakened one, teaches the Dharma to sentient beings in order to remove the defilements, which are like all sorts of decaying substances and mud, from the imperishable true nature of a Tathagata found in all sentient beings. Then, at that time, the exalted one uttered these verses. It is just like the example of some man's nugget of gold that has fallen into all sorts of filth. Though it remained there in such a state for not a few years, yet it would never be affected owing to its imperishable nature. And a divinity perceiving it with divine vision in order to clean it would tell somebody, Here is gold of excellent value. Clean it and use it in the way gold is to be used. In the same way, I can see that also all sentient beings have for a long time been constantly overpowered by defilements. But knowing that their defilements are only accidental, I teach the Dharma with appropriate means in order to purify their intrinsic nature. Sons of good family, again, it is as if in the earth, beneath a storeroom in the house of some poor person, 
Under a covering of earth, seven fathoms deep, there were a great treasure, full of money and gold, of the same volume as the storeroom. But the great treasure, not being, of course, a sentient being, given its lack of mental essence, could not say to the poor man, O oh man, I am a great treasure, but I am buried here, covered under earth. In his mind, the poor man, the owner of the house, would consider himself poor, and even though he walked up and down directly above the treasure, he could not hear of, know of, or perceive the existence of the great treasure beneath the earth. Sons of good family, in the same way, in all sentient beings beneath their thinking, which is based on clinging, and analogously to the house, there is great treasure, namely the treasury of the Tathagata within, including the ten powers, the four kinds of self-assurance, the eighteen specific qualities of a Buddha, and all other qualities of a Buddha. And yet sentient beings cling to color and shape, sound, odor, flavor, and tangible objects, and therefore wonder in samsara, caught in suffering. And as a result of not having heard of what great treasure of Buddha qualities within themselves, they in no way apply themselves to taking possession of it and to purifying it. Sons of good family, then the Tathagata appears in the world and manifests a great treasure of such Buddha qualities among the Bodhisattvas. The Bodhisattvas then acquire confidence in that great treasure of Buddha qualities and dig it out. Therefore, in the world they are known as Tathagatas, honorable ones and perfectly awakened ones, because having become themselves like a great treasure of Buddha qualities, they teach sentient beings the aspects of this unprecedented argument of Buddhahood in all of them, similes illustrating this matter, reasons for actions, and tasks to fulfill. They are donors who give from the storeroom of the great treasure and having unhindered readiness of speech, they are a treasury of the many qualities of the Buddha, including the ten powers and the four kinds of self-assurance. Sons of good family, in this way, with the completely pure vision of a Tathagata, the Tathagata, the honorable one, and perfectly awakened one, also perceives that all sentient beings are like the poor owner of the house with the hidden treasure, and then teaches the Dharma to the Bodhisattvas in order to clean the treasury in all sentient beings, which contains such qualities as the Tathagata knowledge, the ten powers, the four kinds of self-assurance, and the eighteen specific qualities of a Buddha. Then, at that time, the exalted one uttered these verses. It is as if beneath the house of a poor man there was a treasure full of gold and money, in which neither motion nor thinking was existent, and which could not say, I am yours. At the same time a sentient being, the owner of the house, had become poor, but because he would not know of the treasure, and because there was nobody who had informed him, the poor man would remain above the treasure without digging it out. In the same way, with the vision of a Buddha, I see that in all sentient beings, though from the outside they resemble poor men, there is a great treasure, and I see this treasure as the motionless body of a well-gone Buddha. I see that treasure and teach the following to the Bodhisattvas. O oh, you Bodhisattvas, take the treasury of my knowledge. Act so that you may become treasures of the supreme Dharma, being free of poverty and becoming protectors of the world. Whoever acquires confidence in this my teaching, in each of those sentient beings is a treasure. Whoever, having acquired confidence, exerts himself, will quickly attain excellent awakening. Sons of good family, again, it is like the example of a fruit of a mango tree, a rose apple tree, a palmyra palm, or of cane. Inside the sheaths of the outer peel there is a seed of imperishable nature, containing a sprout, a seed which, thrown on soil, will become a great king of trees. Sons of good family, in the same way, also the Tathagata perceives that sentient beings who are dwelling in the world are completely wrapped up in the sheaths of the outer peel of such defilements as desire, anger, misguidedness, longing, and ignorance. In this connection, the true nature of a Tathagata, being in the womb, inside the sheaths of such defilements as desire, anger, misguidedness, longing, and ignorance, is designated sentient being, 
when it has become cool, it is extinct. And because it is then completely purified from the sheaths of defilements of ignorance, it becomes a great accumulation of knowledge in the realm of sentient beings. The world with its gods, having perceived that supreme great accumulation of knowledge in the realm of sentient beings, speaking like a Tathagata, recognizes him as a Tathagata. Sons of good family, in this connection the Tathagata perceives that all sentient beings are like the seed containing a sprout, and then propounds the matter to the Bodhisattva Mahasattvas in order that they might realize the Tathagata knowledge within themselves. Then, at that time, the Exalted One uttered these verses. Just as all the fruits of cane have a cane sprout inside their seeds, and just as a sprout is also in all the fruits of palmyra palms and rose apple trees, when the result, which is already perfectly contained within the fruit's outer peel, is made to germinate, a great tree will grow. In the same way, also, the master of the Dharma, the leader, perceives with the supreme uncontaminated vision of a Buddha, that in all sentient beings, without exception, similarly to the cane seed, there is a body of a well-gone Buddha. The being in the state when the sheath of defilements have not been destroyed is called sentient being. Even though the essence of this sentient being, namely the body of a well-gone Buddha, dwells hidden in ignorance, there is no illusory imagining. It dwells in mental absorption, is completely calm, and there is no motion whatsoever. Thinking, how may these sentient beings become awakened, just as a great tree has grown from a seed, and thus become refuges for the world with its gods. I speak the Dharma in order to completely purify sentient beings. Sons of good family, again it is like the example of a poor man who has a Tathagata image the size of the palm of a hand and made of seven kinds of jewels. It then so happened that the poor man wished to cross a dangerous wilderness carrying the Tathagata image with him, and in order that it might not be discovered by anybody else or stolen by robbers, he then wrapped it in some rotten putrid rags. Then the man died owing to some calamity in that same wilderness, and his Tathagata image, made of jewels and wrapped in rotten rags, then lay around on the footpath. But travelers, unaware of the precious Tathagata image in the rags, repeatedly stepped over it and passed by. And they would even point at it as something disgusting and question, where has the wind brought this wrapped bundle of rotten putrid rags from? And a divinity dwelling in the wilderness, having looked at the situation with divine vision, would show it to some people and direct them, O oh men, here inside this bundle of rags is a Tathagata image made of jewels, worthy to be paid homage by all worlds. So, you should open it. Sons of good family, in the same way, also, the Tathagata perceives that all sentient beings are wrapped in the wrappings of defilements, and that they are like something disgusting, wandering around for ages throughout the wilderness of samsara. And, sons of good family, the Tathagata perceives that also within sentient beings who are wrapped in the wrappings of various defilements, and even though they may have come into existence as animals, there is the body of a Tathagata of the same kind as my own. Sons of good family, how does the mental vision of a Tathagata in all sentient beings become free and completely purified from impurities, so that sentient beings become worthy of the homage of all worlds, as I am now? Thus thinking, the Tathagata teaches in this connection the Dharma to all bodhisattvas in order to cause such beings to become free from the wrappings of defilements in which they are wrapped. Then, at that time, the Exalted One uttered these verses. It is as if an image of a well-gone Buddha were wrapped in putrid, disgusting materials, made of jewels, and yet wrapped in rags, and had been left on a path and lay around there. And the divinity, having perceived it with divine vision, had said to some people, Here is a Tathagata image made of jewels. Open quickly this bundle of rags. My vision is like this divinity's vision. And with that vision, I see that without exception, all these sentient beings, wrapped in the wrappings of defilements, are suffering severely and are continuously tormented by the suffering of samsara. 
I perceive that inside the wrappings consisting of defilements, the body of a victorious one is firmly established, that that body is without motion and change, and that yet there is nobody setting that body free. Having seen this, I then urge the Bodhisattvas, O you who have entered excellent awakening, listen. Thus is the essential law regarding sentient beings. Here within each sentient being always dwells a victorious one, wrapped around with defilements. When the knowledge of a well-gone Buddha within has been set free and all defilements are pacified, then this sentient being is called awakened, and the hearts of gods and humans are full of joy. Sons of good family, again it is like the example of a woman without a protector, of unsightly complexion, having a bad smell, disgusting, frightening, ugly, and like a demoness, and this woman had taken up residence in a poorhouse. While staying there she had become pregnant, and though the life that had entered into her womb was such as to be destined to reign as a world emperor, the woman would neither question herself with reference to the sentient being existing in her womb, of what kind is this life that has entered my womb? Nor would she even question herself in that situation, has some life entered my womb or not? Rather, thinking herself poor, she would be depressed, and would think thoughts like, I am inferior and weak, and would pass the time staying in the poorhouse as somebody of unsightly complexion and bad smell. Sons of good family, in that same way, also all sentient beings think of themselves as unprotected and are tormented by the suffering of samsara. They too stay in a poorhouse, the places of rebirth in the states of being. Then, though the element of a tatagata has entered into sentient beings and is present within, those sentient beings do not realize it. Sons of good family, in order that sentient beings do not despise themselves, the Tathagata in this connection teaches the Dharma with the following words. Sons of good family, apply energy without giving in to despondency. It will happen that one day the Tathagata who has entered and is present within all of you will become manifest. Then you will be designated Bodhisattva rather than ordinary sentient being. And again, in the next stage, you will be designated Buddha rather than Bodhisattva. Then, at that time, the Exalted One uttered these verses. It is as if a simple woman without a protector, of bad complexion and ugly disposition, would go to stay in a poorhouse, and after a time would there have become pregnant, and yet the life that had entered her womb would be such that the embryo was destined to become a world emperor king, elevated by his magnanimity and his seven jewels, and ruling over all four continents. But that simple woman would behave like this. She would not know if some life had entered her womb. Rather, she would continue to stay in the poorhouse and pass the time in the belief that she was poor. In that same way, I see that all sentient beings also think of themselves as unprotected and are distressed by things, which lead to suffering, remaining caught up in the lesser pleasures of the three spheres, even though inside them there is the true nature, like the world emperor in the womb of the woman. Having seen thus, I taught the bodhisattvas. As all sentient beings do not know about the true nature within their own wombs, which grants benefit to the world, take care of them and let them not consider themselves inferior. Apply energy firmly. Soon you yourselves will become victorious ones, and at some point you will attain the essence of awakening. Then, you will proceed to liberate myriads of living beings. Sons of good family, again, it is like the example of figures of horses, elephants, women, or men being fashioned out of wax, then encased in clay so that they are completely covered with it and finally after the clay has dried, melted in the fire, and after the wax has been made to drip out, gold is smelted. And when the cavity inside the mold is filled with the melted gold, even though all the figurines having cooled down step by step and arrived at a uniform state are covered with black clay and unsightly outside, their insides are made of gold. Then, when a smith or a smith's apprentice uses a hammer to remove from the figures the outer layer of clay around those figures which he sees have cooled down, then in that moment the golden figures lying inside become completely clean. 
Sons of good family, likewise, also the Tathagata perceives with the vision of a Tathagata that all sentient beings are like figures in clay. The cavity inside the sheaths of the outer defilements and impurities is filled with the qualities of a Buddha, and with the precious uncontaminated knowledge, inside a Tathagata exists in all magnificence. Sons of good family, having then perceived that all sentient beings are like this, the Tathagata goes among the Bodhisattvas and perfectly teaches them these nine Dharma discourses of that kind, i.e., on the Tathagata knowledge within all sentient beings. Using the diamond-like hammer of the Dharma, the Tathagata then hews away all outer defilements in order to entirely purify the precious Tathagata knowledge of those Bodhisattva Mahasattvas who have become calm and cool. Sons of good family, what is called smith is a designation for the Tathagata. Sons of good family, after the Tathagata, the honorable one and perfectly awakened one, has perceived with his Buddha vision that all sentient beings are like this, he teaches the Dharma in order to establish them in Buddha knowledge, having let them become free from the defilements. Then, at that time, the Exalted One uttered these verses. It is like the example of casting golden images. First, wax figures are covered outside with clay. Then, after the wax has been melted and so drips out, the inside of the clay has a cavity and is empty. Finally, when those cavities are filled with precious melted materials, they turn into many hundreds of thousands of golden figures. Then, a smith, realizing that the figures in the clay have thoroughly cooled down, hews away the coverings of clay around the figures, thinking, What can I do so that these black molds with their insides made of precious materials may turn into clean figures? In the same way, I see that all sentient beings, without exception, are like golden figures covered with clay. Their outside crusts are the sheaths of defilements, but inside there is the Buddha knowledge. Using the tool of the Dharma, the Tathagata then hews away the defilements of those bodhisattvas who have become calm and cool, so that their defilements are expelled without any remainder. Living beings' internal child of a victorious one, who has become clean in this world, is just like the beautiful precious figure. Living beings' bodies are filled with the ten powers of a Buddha, and they are venerated here by the world with its gods. Thus I see all living beings, thus I see also the bodhisattvas. Thus purified by the Tathagata they become well-gone Buddhas. Having become pure well-gone Buddhas, they then teach the rule of the Buddhas. Then the Exalted One said to the Bodhisattva Mahasattva Vajramati, Vajramati, sons and daughters of good family, whoever, whether a layman or ordained, learns this Dharma discourse called a Tathagata within, preserves it, recites it, understands it, arranges it into a book, explains it also to others in detail, and teaches it, that person will produce much merit. Vajramati, a certain bodhisattva might apply himself to realize the Tathagata knowledge, and for the purpose of venerating all Buddhas without exception in every single world system, he would, after achieving supernatural powers, attain such a mental absorption that through the power created by this absorption, he could day by day present pavilions to every single existing Tathagata among the Buddhas, the exalted ones, even more numerous than the sands of the Ganges River, in myriads of Buddha fields, even more numerous than the sands of the Ganges River, together with their bodhisattvas and the communities of Shravakas. To reside in these pavilions would be pleasant in every season. Their width and length would each be one mile, their height ten miles. They would be made of all kinds of jewels, and would be heavenly fragrant, being strewn with a variety of fallen blossoms and furnished with all immaculate object of enjoyment. The number of pavilions would be as many as fifty times the sands of a hundred thousand Ganges rivers. For a fully hundred thousand cosmic cycles, he would show reverence in this way. If, on the contrary, a certain son or daughter of good family should forge the resolution to strive for awakening, and internalize or arrange into a book only one simile from this Dharma discourse called a Tathagata within, then Vajramati, 
the previously described bodhisattva's accumulation of merit does not come near by even a hundredth, a thousandth, a hundred thousandth, any number, any tiny part, any calculation, or any resemblance to his accumulation of merit, nor does it bear any comparison. Then, Vajramati, suppose a bodhisattva, in searching for the Dharma of the Buddhas, strewed 400,000 triple bushels of flowers of the coral tree for every single Tathagata among the Buddhas, the exalted ones, for fully a hundred thousand cosmic cycles. Vajramati, if on the contrary any monk, nun, layman, or laywoman should decide to strive for awakening, and after listening to this Dharma discourse called a Tathagata within, raised their joined palms and said just the single phrase, I joyfully approve what I have heard. Then, Vajramati, the previously described bodhisattva's accumulation of merit and benefit, connected with the offerings of flowers and flower garlands, planted among the Tathagatas as fields of merit, do not come near by even a hundredth, a thousandth, a hundred thousandth, any number, any tiny part, any calculation, or any resemblance to those accumulations of merit and benefit, nor do they bear any comparison. Then, at that time, the Exalted One uttered these verses. Suppose, having brought forth the wish for awakening, some sentient being listened to this discourse, and learned it, copied it, or arranged it into a book, and explained even just a single verse with appreciation. Or if after listening to this text called A Tathagata Within, somebody searched for this excellent awakening, listen to my description of the benefit accruing to him in these cases, a description of what amount of merit is produced. Suppose a hero abiding in these excellent supernatural powers worshipped for a thousand cosmic cycles, the highest of humans in their shravakas, in the ten directions. He would present to each teacher of the world, without exception, excellent palaces made of jewels, in number several myriad times the sands of the Ganges, and more unimaginably many. The palaces would be ten miles high and one mile wide, and long, and excellently furnished with fragrances and incense, and inside be provided with thrones made of jewels. These thrones, and palanquins too, would be spread with silk and calico a hundred times as innumerable as the sands of the Ganges River. He would present these palaces with thrones to each victorious one. Upon the victorious ones who reside in world systems, those victorious ones more numerous than the sands of the Ganges River, he would thus bestow these palaces, and would venerate them all with appreciation. If on the contrary, some wise person, having listened to this sutra, learns only one single simile correctly, or having learnt it, explains it to somebody else, then he will produce a greater amount of merit thereby than the previous person. Regarding the former merit seized by the hero who worshipped the Tathagatas, it does not come near by any tiny part or resemblance to the merit of this wise person. The wise person therefore becomes a refuge for all living beings, and he quickly attains excellent awakening. The wise bodhisattva who reflects upon the following, a Tathagata within exists in the same way in all sentient beings. This is the true nature of all sentient beings, will quickly become an awakened one through his own power. Vajramati, again, by way of this following kind of exposition, one should know thus, namely that this Dharma discourse is extremely beneficial for bodhisattva mahasattvas, because it will lead to the realization of the knowledge of an omniscient one. Vajramati, formerly, in the past, innumerable, vast, measureless, unimaginable, unparalleled, and quantitatively inexpressible cosmic cycles ago, and even more beyond the other side of that time, then at that time, there appeared in the world a Tathagata, the honorable one and perfectly awakened one, named Sadapramukta Rashmi, realized in wisdom and conduct, a well-gone Buddha, a world-knowing one, a charioteer of human beings to be tamed, unsurpassable, a teacher of gods and men, a Buddha, an exalted one. Vajramati, why is that Tathagata called Sadapramukta Rashmi? Vajramati, immediately after the exalted one, the Tathagata, Sadapramukta Rashmi, 
Then a bodhisattva had entered the womb of his mother. Light was emitted from his body while he was still within the womb of his mother, so that in the East, hundreds of thousands of world systems, as many as the atomic-sized dust of ten Buddha fields, came to be constantly filled with brightness. In the same way, in the other nine of the ten directions, namely the south, the west, the north, the southeast, southwest, northwest, and northeast, along with the zenith and the nadir, hundreds of thousands of world systems, as many as the atomic-sized dust of ten Buddha fields, came to be constantly filled with brightness. And owing to the pleasant and beautiful light from the body of that bodhisattva, which caused sentient beings to rejoice, and led them to delight, as many as hundreds of thousands of world systems constantly came to be filled with brightness. Vajramanti, all sentient beings in the hundreds of thousands of world systems who were touched by the light from that bodhisattva within the womb of his mother, attained strength, beauty, mindfulness, comprehension, understanding, and readiness of speech. All sentient beings in the hundreds of thousands of world systems who had been born in hells, in animal existences, in the world of Yama, and as demons, immediately could abandon their birth by virtue of being touched by the light from that bodhisattva, and were reborn among gods and men. Those born as gods and men by virtue of being touched by the light immediately became incapable of turning back from supreme and perfect awakening. In addition, all those incapable of turning back who had been touched by the light immediately, when touched by the light, attained intellectual receptivity to the truth that dharmas have no origination. They also obtained the efficacious formulas called Chapter of the Five Hundred Qualities. All those hundreds of thousands of world systems which had been touched by the light from the body of the bodhisattva within the womb of his mother came to be established as made of barrel, laid out in the form of a chessboard, with golden threads, with jewel trees coming out of each square, the trees having blossoms, fruits, fragrances, and colors. When the jewel trees were shaken and moved by the wind, such pleasant and charming sounds came up as there are, the sound Buddha, the sound Dharma, the sound religious community, and the sound bodhisattva along with the sounds, five powers of a bodhisattva, five spiritual faculties, seven branches of awakening, liberation, mental absorption, and attainment. Because of those sounds of the jewel trees, sentient beings in all of the hundreds of thousands of world systems became and remained satisfied and joyful. In all the Buddha fields, the hells, the animal existences, the world of Yama, and the world of the demons disappeared. The bodhisattva within the womb of his mother emitted light like the disk of the moon for all those sentient beings, Three times a day and three times a night they raised their joined palms to pay homage while he was still in the womb. Vajramati, when that bodhisattva had been born, had set out for ascetic life and finally completely awakened to Buddhahood. Light continued to be emitted in such a way from the body of that bodhisattva. Even after his complete awakening, light continued to be emitted from the body of that exalted one. Even when the exalted one entered into Parinirvana, that light from his body continued to be emitted in the same way. And, even after the Tathagata had entered Parinirvana and his body remained as relics in a stupa, the light from his body still continued to be emitted. For this reason, Vajramanti, that exalted one is named the always light-emitting one, Sada Pramukta Rashmi, by gods and men. Vajramanti, under the rule of that exalted one, the Tathagata, the honorable one, and perfectly awakened one, Sada Pramukta Rashmi, right after he had become completely awakened, there appeared a certain bodhisattva named Ananta Rashmi. He was accompanied by a retinue of a thousand bodhisattvas. In Vajramati, that bodhisattva Ananta Rashmi questioned the exalted one, the Tathagata, the honorable one, and perfectly awakened one, Sada Pramukta Rashmi, with reference to this Dharma discourse called a Tathagata within. In order to benefit the bodhisattvas and to win them over to his side, the exalted one, the Tathagata, the honorable one, and perfectly awakened one, Sada Pramukta Rashmi, thereupon perfectly explained this Dharma discourse called a Tathagata within, 
for 500 great cosmic cycles, remaining in that same seat. And because he perfectly explained to the bodhisattvas this Dharma discourse called a Tathagata within, in intelligible words and by employing various means with regard to the Dharma, explanations in hundreds of thousands of similes, the bodhisattvas in all the world systems, in the ten directions, as many as the atomic-sized dust of the ten Buddha fields, understood this Dharma easily. Vajramati, in this connection the roots of virtue of all the bodhisattvas who heard this Dharma discourse called a Tathagata within, or even only the title a Tathagata within, successively came to maturity. Then, in such a way that the marvelous manifestation of the excellent qualities of their Buddha fields conform to their roots of virtue, these bodhisattvas attained supreme and perfect awakening apart from four bodhisattva mahasattvas. Vajramati, if you think that then, at that time, the bodhisattva Anantarashmi was somebody other than yourself, you should not see it this way. Vajramati, you yourself were then, at that time, the bodhisattva Anantarashmi. Who are the four bodhisattvas who under the rule of that exalted one have not attained supreme and perfect awakening to Buddhahood up until today? Those four are the bodhisattvas Manjushri, Mahasthamaprapta, Avalokiteshvara, and you yourself Vajramati. Vajramati, this Dharma discourse called Atatagata within is thus of great benefit, since listening to it leads immediately to the realization of Buddha knowledge for bodhisattva mahasattvas. Then, at that time, the Exalted One uttered these verses. In the past, endless cosmic cycles ago, the Exalted One, Sada Pramukta Rashmi, appeared. From such light being emitted from his body, myriads of Buddha fields came to be illuminated. At that time, right after that victorious one had attained complete awakening, the Bodhisattva Anantarashmi asked that well-gone Buddha, victorious one, and master for this discourse, and the latter then perfectly and without pause explained this sutra. All those who happened to hear this sutra personally from the leader, under the rule of that same victorious one, quickly attained noble awakening, Mahasthamaprapta, Avalokiteshvara, and third, the Bodhisattva Manjushri, and you yourself, Vajramati, are the fourth. At that time, they all heard this sutra. The Bodhisattva Anantarashmi, who at that time had questioned the victorious one about this text called Atatagata within, and who had been tamed by that same victorious one, this son of a well-gone Buddha, Vajramati, was at that time yourself. I too, when I formerly practiced the path of a Bodhisattva, happened to hear the title of this sutra from a well-gone Buddha, Simhadvaja, and having heard it with appreciation, I raised my joined palms. By those well-done deeds, I quickly attained noble awakening. Therefore, wise bodhisattvas should always learn this excellent sutra. Vajramati, when sons and daughters of good family who are restricted by obstacles caused by their deeds listen to this Dharma discourse called a Tathagata within, and when they show, recite, or teach it, then, with regard to listening to this Dharma discourse, showing it, reciting it, explaining it, and copying it, they will all, seeing the Dharma before their eyes, easily become purified from the obstacles caused by their deeds. Then, the Venerable Ananda asked the Exalted One the following. Exalted One, as for those sons and daughters of good family who are not restricted by obstacles caused by their deeds and who apply themselves to this Dharma discourse, from how many Buddhas, exalted ones, do they preserve expositions of the Dharma as persons of great learning so that they become perfected? The exalted one said, Ananda, there are sons and daughters of good family as well who are already perfected on account of having preserved expositions of the Dharma from a hundred Buddhas. Ananda, but there are also sons and daughters of good family who are only perfected on account of having preserved expositions of the Dharma from 200 Buddhas, 300, 400, 500, 1000, 2000, 3000, 4000, 5000, 6000, 7000, 8000, 9000, 10000, or 100,000 Buddhas, or even myriads of Buddhas. 
Ananda, a bodhisattva who preserves this dharma discourse, recites it, perfectly teaches it in detail also to others, and preserves it as a book, should bring forth this thought. I wish to attain supreme and perfect awakening already now. He is worthy of the homage and veneration of the world with its gods, humans, and demons, as I am now. Then, at that time, the exalted one uttered these verses. When a bodhisattva has heard this sutra, he thinks, I wish to attain the noble awakening. He in whose hands this sutra is found worthy of the homage of the world as I am now. Being himself a protector of the world and training sentient beings, he is worthy of the praise of the leaders and the trainers. Thus, he in whose hands this sutra is found should be called king of the Dharma. He in whose hands this sutra is found is worthy of being looked upon as the best of men, as bearer of the lamp of the Dharma, and like the full moon, like a protector of the world. He is a foundation worthy of being paid homage. After the Exalted One had spoken thus, the Bodhisattva Vajramanti, the entire multitude of Bodhisattvas, the great Travakas, the four assemblies, and the world with its gods, humans, demons, and celestial musicians, were delighted and praised what the Exalted One had said. Here ends the Holy Mahayana Sutra called Atatagata Within. So that was the Tathagatagarbha Sutra. Docs, do you have any questions? Several. If I didn't, I don't think we'd have an episode. <laughs> All right. So first, as more of a meta question about the text. So the r- translation we're reading has a lot of spots where there are words in brackets. I'm not clear on what those brackets are supposed to indicate. What's going on there? That's a good question. So the text that we were reading, as I mentioned in the intro, is the Michael Zimmerman translation from the Tibetan version of this sutra. The grammar of Tibetan doesn't really quite line up to the grammar of English very well. And so in a lot of cases, there is not really an English grammatically correct subject-verb agreement. And there's also sometimes different use of relative pronouns, and there's different use of other parts of speech that they just function differently in Tibetan, especially in ancient Tibetan. And so the brackets are usually put there to say that the author, the translator, actually put those words in themselves, and you can't find those words in the original translation. Part of this has to do with the fact that this this sutra was often condensed and a lot of words were removed from it to make it shorter and easier to remember because you're kind of invoking the teaching whenever you're reciting it rather than actually reading it word for word for textual analysis in practice. And so whenever you see something like the word with when it's been put in brackets or who had or something like that, it's actually analyzing the text and reading back into it all of that contextual information and all of that situational stuff to make the narrative actually intelligible that the translator himself has put back in. Okay. Cool. So we have pretty early in this text uh, just a big list of the names of the people who were present for this discussion. I note when we're talking about the Bodhisattva Mahasattvas, I note that the names are listed such that they, the ones that rhyme are put together. So we start with Dharmamati, Simhamati, Vyagramati, like Mati, 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 over and over again. And then it goes to uh, Prabha, Prabha, Prabha again. So I'm imagining this is meant to make these names easier to remember for reciting. That's exactly right. 
And these are not really complete lists of the people who were present because there's many thousands in attendance. I think that in the second paragraph, it says there were fully 100,000 monks. And in that case, it's impossible to list them all, but these are the important ones. And these are ones that when you recite their names, it's kind of like praising them and making an offering to them. And so these names, like you, exactly like you say, they're arranged such that you can remember only the first syllable. And then, you know, if you remember that, then the second syllable or the second half makes a lot more sense. It's the same. And it's something that you can remember the order of that second syllable or that last half, right? So you can remember all of the Mati names and then all of the Prabha names and then all of the Krami names and so on. I note among this assembly, there are several names among the monks who are recognizable. And there's the same with the bodhisattvas. So, like, I see Avalokiteshvar, I see Maitreya. Are all of these listed ones, like, figures that have other sutras or other writings dedicated to them? Like, what do I need to know about these names to understand them, other than the ones that I already know, like Avalokiteshvara? So, most of these other names, they are only really just named in texts. Most of them don't actually have anything else that's written about them or written to them. They might have texts that they wrote that become part of the commentarial tradition, uh, or they might have sutras that are attributed to them in some cases. Shariputra has sutras attributed to him where he was sent by the Buddha to go speak on a topic all on his own. But most of these characters, like just picking out a random one that I can see right in front of me, Gandharati. He's not a name that I have seen in any other case. I haven't seen it in any other sutra, any other tantra, any other text. And so oftentimes these are lists that are for recitation and for praising because these Buddhas do exist and these bodhisattvas do exist. And praising them is one way to achieve Buddhahood and to achieve good merit and good karma. But another reason why these lists are so long and because these names are so unique is that you're trying to elicit the thought in the practitioner, like, wow, how many bodhisattvas there are in the 10 corners of the universe? How many people are on this path? And how many bodhisattvas are present at this sermon, right? It's such an amazing teaching, exemplified by the fact that there's as many bodhisattva mahasattvas as there are in 60 Ganges rivers, grains of sand. Right, once again, invoking absurdly large numbers for the point of getting people to stop thinking in numbered terms. Exactly. So, now we get into the actual meat of the sutra. So, I have a quote here when talking about the lotuses being produced in the sky. Uh, they were described as covering this whole Buddha field and remained there like a jeweled canopy. So. The scale of what's going on here, if we're taking the idea of the Buddha field literally, is like the entire world. Like the entire world is supposed to be seeing these lotuses. That's exactly right. So this is implying that we are actually in the Buddha land, the Buddha world, the pure land, the Buddha field, however you want to call it. In Sanskrit, it's called the Buddha Kshetra of Shakyamuni. This place is called Jambudvipa. And it is actually the entire universe as we see it. So the finite universe that we live in 
And this is set aside from the pure land of Amida or the pure land of Akshobhya or of other universes that have other Buddhas in them. Uh, this whole universe is Shakyamuni's. And this text is actually saying that because he has Buddha powers, he's a fully realized Buddha with supernatural powers and mastery over causes and conditions, he creates this huge, universe-large, jeweled canopy of lotuses. And one reason why he does that is, according to the Mahayana interpretation, this upaya, this way of doing or saying, mostly doing, exactly the right combination of things that's necessary to enlighten someone or something in the audience, right? So, there's there's got to be, theoretically speaking, characters in the audience who cannot be enlightened by what he's about to say, but can be enlightened by the things that he does, such as creating this big giant jeweled canopy of lotuses. I should also mention that this is something that happens in a lot of sutras that we read and discuss. He creates a big scene, a big audience chamber out of these very beautiful and trippy images, like a sky that's made out of lotus flowers, for example. And then the sky made out of lotus flowers starts to rot. And each calyx of the lotuses were seated cross-legged, the body of a tatagata, emitting hundreds of thousands of rays of light and visible everywhere. And all the lotuses were opened up and blossomed. And then the next paragraph, it's talking about how the lotuses all rot. But the Tathagata within each of these lotuses remains pristine. So that's alone, like, six different layers of symbolism that are worthy of inspecting. So, yeah, let's inspect it. So talking about, off the top of my head, I can, I note the, not necessarily immutable, but incorruptible nature of the Tathagata within that is being symbolized here. Like in later similes, it's, you know, the nugget of gold or like it is something that is unaffected by the defilements around it. That's exactly right. And that's exactly the image that is trying to be conveyed here is that the Tathagata in this case, or the nugget of gold is completely untarnishable. No matter how bad anything on the outside gets, that one thing stays exactly as beautiful and pristine as it was in the very beginning. And it's immutable in that sense. It's something that stays exactly how it is in that nature forever. I should mention that this is a point of critique from other schools of Buddhism onto Mahayana schools that actually believe in what this text has to say. They say that this Buddha nature, this idea of Buddha nature that we're going to talk about whenever we get further into the text, violates the doctrine of impermanence. The idea is that this nugget of gold, metaphorically speaking, this Tathagata stays exactly as he is forever in a capital F sense, capital E eternity. And that does actually violate impermanence. The text addresses that much later and we'll talk about it, but that's, that's a good point that you've zoned in on because that's something that is visually playing out the teaching that Shakyamuni is going to give with his words in a moment. And it's uh, reflective of how this teaching kind of fits into the Mahayana system. The idea is that these Tathagatas, they kind of reside within all of us. There's a Tathagata within all of us, every sentient being. And no matter how bad things become for the sentient being or how bad that sentient being themselves becomes, that Tathagata stays in meditation, stays in perfect, fully realized Buddhahood. And 
what you can do is you can actually, through cultivation of the enlightened mind and the enlightened eye and the enlightened nature, you can peel away the rotten, dirty parts. You can wipe away the dirt and the defilement, and you can realize that Tathagata in your life. So it's interesting, like we're skipping ahead a little bit to the uh, nugget of gold simile, but it's interesting to me the contrast between putting that in a lotus, which, you know, when I'm thinking about plants growing, that's a matter of cultivation, that's a matter of growth. Whereas discovering the nugget of gold in the other simile is a matter more of mining or discovery rather than cultivation. And it feels like it's mixing the metaphors up a little bit in a way that I think makes them a little weaker. I'm not entirely sure. It's mixed up in a way that implies opposite ends to I'm glad that you brought that up because that gives us an opportunity to talk about what the lotus actually symbolizes in the Mahayana Buddhist context and also what gold symbolizes. And once we've talked about that a little bit, I think you'll see how these two metaphors are actually kind of two sides of the same coin and how they're connected to each other from the eye of the practitioner and from the eye of Shakyamuni. So the lotus flower metaphor is referring to the nature of a Buddha or a Bodhisattva. Lotus flowers grow in this really gross, nasty, muddy, murky water, and they emerge as an image of purity and beauty. So the idea is that they are supposed to go to the world of suffering and enlighten and save people there. They're supposed to be an image of purity and beauty in the midst of a murky and gross, defiled world. So this is symbolic not only of the nature of a Buddha and Bodhisattva, but it's also symbolic of samsara and the nature of the world that we live in now. And the image of these lotuses rotting has to do, of course, with the fact that there's an implied teaching in this that you can actually become enlightened, emerge as an image of purity and beauty, and then actually become defiled by the world around you. So a bodhisattva or a Buddha could actually theoretically arise in the world and then rot themselves and then backtrack in a way themselves. However, as we know, the thesis of this sutra is that even if that happens, the Tathagata inside, the womb of the Tathagata stays exactly as it is and stays pure. Now, speaking about the gold symbology, you were talking about how the lotus is a matter of cultivation, right? And that fits perfectly with the bodhisattva metaphor and how gold is like mining, right? You have to go and find it in the dirt, right? So the bodhisattva path is cultivation and is planting this lotus and letting it bloom and grow. Now, Another way of looking at it, especially from an unenlightened perspective, is like mining for gold. So if you don't partake of the bodhisattva path, if you don't partake of this lotus metaphor, you still do have this nugget of gold within you, and you just have to mine for it. That mining is kind of parallel to the cultivation and the planting of the lotus that is being talked about here. At the same time, you can't really lose a lotus, right? You plant it and it stays in one place. And it might rot, it might disappear, but you can't really misplace it. You can't really forget that there was a lotus or that lotuses exist. But if you happen to have a nugget of gold, you can actually misplace it. You can forget where it is. And I think that one character in here actually does that. And so in that case, even though you might not know you have this Buddha nature, even if you might not know that this womb of the Tathagata exists within you, even if you misplace it, you actually still have it, it's still there, and it's still just as perfect as it was before. 
So this is talking about kind of the two different natures of this Tathagata Garbha, right? One nature is that it's a cultivative aspect. It's something that is achieved, and I should say not achieved, but realized through the Bodhisattva path and the ideal of the Bodhisattva life. And then the other side of it is that it's something that is buried deep within you. And you have the chance and the opportunity, of course, to unfold it, to mine it out, to realize it that way. Or you could actually even misplace it and forget that you have it. But it's still there either way. Okay, so both of those notes that I had were correct, or not necessarily correct, but were accurate to what the text was trying to convey, and it's kind of both at once, which, you know, non-duality, that makes sense, that's very Buddhist, I can deal with that. So let's talk a bit about Vajramati. So Vajramati is one of the Bodhisattva Mahasattvas in the group, and he's kind of taking the role that I usually do in this. It's like, hey, what is actually going on? Who? He's the guy asking the questions to set the Buddha up to talk about this kind of thing. So, other than what's revealed in this sutra, do we know anything more about Vajramati? Does he show up elsewhere, or is that is this where he lives? It's my inclination to say that Vajramati only lives in this text as a named bodhisattva, as one who has dialogue, and I don't think that very much else is known about him. He's listed, and you can find his name if you search it online, but he doesn't have any texts or other dialogue associated with him. Okay, so Vajramati is just here to ask the question and isn't necessarily a character to focus in on, as opposed to, say, Ananda or Shariputra in previous ones. That's exactly right. He's not necessarily a first-generation disciple of Shakyamuni. He might have been converted by somebody else, or he might actually even be a bodhisattva from another entire Buddha realm where he studies and practices and perfects his bodhisattva perfections under the guidance of some other Buddha. So, a lot of, like, now that I've got the clarification on the divide between cultivation and discovery... On the text we're reading, on page 349, at the end, the Buddha starts talking about a poor person who does not know that, let's see, quote, Under a covering of earth seven fathoms deep, there were a great treasure full of money and gold of the same value as the storeroom. So talking about somebody who is poor, but is sitting on top of a pile of treasure that they don't know about. Like, again, this is going with what's been established before, but it seems a little weird and jarring to me to see the Buddha talking about money, especially as such a desirable thing, and especially talking about that to other monks and bodhisattvas. So, is there more going on there? Is that, when? since when are we talking about the idea of enlightenment as being in some way parallel to money. Like, that seems un-Buddhist. You're right to say that it seems un-Buddhist, given, in fact, that there are precepts that prevent monks and monastics from even handling or possessing money, right? They're not allowed to touch it. They're not allowed to be involved with it because they're supposed to remove themselves from the regular, corrupt, defiled cycle of existence for everybody else, which is, of course, work, earn money, buy stuff, work, earn money, buy stuff, and so on and so forth. But in this case, there are actually a lot of times in the text where the Buddha takes a metaphor of wealth and 
uses that in his imagery for enlightenment or for a pure land or for something like that. And I think that this has to do a lot with the culture at the time in India and Nepal and so on where these texts were authored. The reason why one might want to follow Buddhism is because from an unenlightened point of view, if you follow Pure Land Buddhism, you get to go to this place that's made of jewels. If you follow Mahayana Buddhism, if we go back to the Lotus Sutra and the three different carts, then you get to be on this very beautiful, ornate, decorated, jeweled cart, right? And so there's a lot of times where bejeweled stuff and where wealth, material wealth specifically, is used to represent figuratively the achievements of the Mahayana path of the Bodhisattva ideal. And in reality, what would happen, of course, is if you followed this path, you wouldn't become so wealthy. You wouldn't become so materially rich necessarily because that doesn't make sense. That's kind of, like you say, counter to the entire goal, so to speak, of Buddhism. But in this case, it's used as like as a bait, right? As kind of like a, a bait to the reader who's not enlightened enough to say that all of this currency, all of this material wealth is actually kind of pointless. It's kind of useless. I can't take it with me when I pass away, right? So it's kind of being used to depict the beauty and the symbolic material abundance and wealth of enlightenment, of the Mahayana path. The Bodhisattva path is wealthy, so to speak, because there's enough of it to go around for all sentient beings, as opposed to in the Shravaka's path, which is not as wealthy because there's only enough to go around for one individual person. Does that make sense? Sort of. I guess the the point that's hitting me is specifically the word money. It doesn't provoke any dissonance in my head talking about jewels or gold, because those are beautiful. A jeweled cart is going to be beautiful, and beauty is something that makes sense for Buddhism to invoke. Money specifically is not beautiful, and so... It might be a gold coin that you find pretty or whatever, but the purpose of money is not to be beautiful, whereas the purpose of invoking the jeweled cart is to invoke a vision of beauty. So, you know, when we're talking about gold and jewels, that doesn't hit me that much. But here we're talking specifically about money. Like that brings to my mind, you know, the green bills that we have in the U.S., which are not super fun to look at, in my opinion. It's definitely not something that's beautiful, right? That's definitely, I agree. It's something that is part of this like defiled, corrupt world that Buddhism kind of denies, kind of denounces, says that one ought to retreat from. But I think that in this case, it's more likely just a metaphor, right? Because the person is poor and they view themselves as not having a lot of material wealth and thus not having the freedom in society that material wealth affords. But they actually do have that. They just don't know where it is. And as we read on in this metaphor, which we'll get to in a moment, they are also talking specifically about a characteristic of this Tathagatagarbha, which is that it's not a sentient being in itself. So it can't actually communicate its existence to anybody. So in that case, there are those that feel like they don't have any of the attainments, the meditative, the spiritual attainments of the bodhisattva path or of buddhist meditation but the but the buddha is saying here that they actually do it's just buried and they don't know that it's there so these attainments that you get from cultivating this path of enlightenment 
are being kind of aligned with the idea of like material wealth because that gives you freedom. Material wealth gives you freedom from the suffering of being poor. The meditative attainments of Buddhism give you freedom from suffering. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I guess at the end, it's just me going, huh, that's a weird choice of words and imagery to work with. But And that's one of the few times that we actually see that image. And part of that might have to do with the fact that the version that we're reading is originally preserved in Tibetan and is not originally preserved in Sanskrit or in Pali. That's part of the reason why this might be the case is because of social and cultural circumstances in Tibet around the translation or otherwise the authorship of this text. And maybe it doesn't have anything to do with what the Buddha actually said. So, from here, most of the rest of the text is bringing up more similes to reinforce the original point of uh, Buddha nature. So, we have the molds that start out covered in clay, but then the blacksmith breaks them down to see the gold figure. The ugly and stinky woman that gets pregnant and with with Buddha nature and it's like, oh, that one is a bit yikes. Yeah, that, there's a lot of sexism and gross stuff like that right. in a lot of these texts. Which we've discussed thoroughly already, so no need to linger on that. But So, it's a lot of different ways to say the same thing going on in the sutra. Is there anything specific to the different similes that you would like to talk about. Sure, yeah. I think there's a couple of times, uh, not every time, but there's a couple of times where the simile is related to a specific characteristic about Buddha nature that Shakyamuni wants to communicate to the audience, but is not communicating in a literal sense and is rather using this metaphor or simile. So, one thing that I am thinking of whenever I talk about this is the buried treasure metaphor, right? I was mentioning before how one thing that he wanted to communicate was that this buried treasure, this Buddha nature that we all have, you can't really have it communicate to you that it's there because it doesn't have mental essence. It doesn't have sentience. And so that's a specific characteristic is that you have to find out that you have it yourself by means of studying Buddhism, by means of being in the audience of the Buddha or reading the sutras or being taught this kind of thing, right? So this is opening up the minds of the audience to see that there are people out there in the world who all do have this Buddha nature, this womb of the Tathagata within them, but they don't know it, and therefore it goes unrealized. And the nature that they present to the world is the rotten lotus, or is the poor person with the buried treasure, or so on and so forth. All of the other metaphors and similes that we see in the text. So in that case, there are cases where we should be sensitive to the fact that Okay, this is not a sentient thing. This is not a permanent thing. This is not something that you can like have and possess and hold and give away or destroy or do away with. This Buddha nature is being described bit by bit through these symbolisms in order to teach the audience what it actually is and how it actually fits into the five skandhas and the 12 links of dependent origination and the five, you know, and the nine Sorry, I'm going. I'm getting twisted with my lists in my head. There's so many of them. Right. Well, I mean, this is a religion full of lists, so that's totally understandable. Essentially, they're trying to fit this idea, which is not actually in the Pali Canon, into the matrix that's created by the Pali Canon. One important component of this Tathagatagarbha 
that I've been mentioning and passing so far is that, of course, all sentient beings, according to this text, have it. And being that they have Tathagatas within, this text is telling us also how we should confer and treat with those people. If there are Buddhas inside everyone, we should treat everyone like we would treat a Buddha. And if we come across people who don't know there is one within them, this text is calling on us to tell them and to teach them. Because like I said before, this Buddha nature, this Tathagata womb, can't actually tell the person that it's in that it's there. So we have to tell them and lead them to an understanding of their own Buddhahood through skillful means. So this is a basis for moral compassion and kindness and respect. And it's also a basis for the teaching and leadership ideal of the Bodhisattva. This Bodhisattva, of course, would likely not, unless the situation called for it, directly tell them, hey, you have a Buddha in you. Because they might not have even heard the Buddha. They don't know that the Buddha is important at all. They don't know who he is or what he is or what Buddhahood is. And so the Bodhisattva would then likely use upaya, skillful means, metaphor, simile, to lead this person down the path of enlightenment. And so it's important that we remember that there is an action item that goes along with this description. The action item is, you know, if you want to pursue the path of the Bodhisattva, if you want to unsheath yourself from this rotten lotus and reveal your hidden tatagata within, then you should do that same thing for other people. Makes sense. Yeah, the whole idea of the internal Tathagata, meaning that you have to treat everybody like a Buddha, makes sense to me. But I will note something that bothers me a little bit. All of this is predicated on having the Buddha's omniscience. Like, we can't see the Tathagata within. We can't see the gold nugget dropped in the crap. We can't see the gold figures without the clay cleared off of it. Like, it makes sense to me, you know, the the way this should affect one's ethics. Like, everybody is, has a potential to be a Tathagata, so treat people like they are. But we, what do we really do with this, because all of these things are requiring vision that as a mere human who is at least currently not a bodhisattva, I can't see the negative goal. Like, I would see it as another pile of crap and the big pile of crap. Like, what can we do here? That's a very good question. I mean, the question is essentially, like, how do we come to know our own nature? And I think that the answer that this presents and the answer that other texts in the Mahayana tradition and in the Theravada tradition present are actually just kind of the same. This is another teaching, another one of those passwords to enlightenment that we've talked about concerning the Mahayana Theravada project. This is something that you should meditate and study and put into practice as much as you can in order to come to a realization about, right? We've talked about how the Theravada Buddhists and the older schools, they we're doing much more of a brute force approach to omniscience and omnipotence and so on and so forth by means of coming to a correct understanding of every single thing in all of reality. Emptiness and, in this case, Buddha nature and other doctrines are presented in the Mahayana texts as being passwords so that you don't have to brute force. You actually have a piece of the puzzle, which makes the rest of the puzzle kind of fall together all in one go if you come to a correct understanding of it. And so, if we actually do come to this understanding of the non-duality between oneself and the nature of a Tathagata, if we actually 
abandon this concept of self and treat ourselves and other people as though we are all infinite Tathagatas, then that's kind of it. That's kind of the step that you need to take in order to become a fully realized Tathagata, is you have to believe that you're one, and you have to do everything and say everything that a Tathagata would say, and you have to know viscerally, know truly about the truths of non-self and emptiness and so forth, but also of your own Tathagata nature, right? So this is how you kind of cultivate the enlightened eye. This is how you kind of cultivate enlightened knowledge, so to speak, wisdom, is by changing your own belief systems through practice and through study. And this is one of the things that you practice and study. This is, I guess that's just my engineer side, not meshing with this idea very well. When I'm looking at this kind of thing, I'm the thing I'm looking for is what should I do? This uh, sutta doesn't really have an answer for that. I'm presuming that's covered in others. Well, the only answer that it does provide for that is to like preach this sermon and recite this sermon over and over again. And that speaks to the fact that ultimately the answer is kind of like you just keep telling yourself and others that this is true until you and others believe it. And that's kind of a cynical view and kind of a reductionist view of how cultivation in the Buddhist sense works. But when you boil it down, I mean, that's kind of how it goes. Coming to a correct understanding of reality and of yourself is not something that is so individualized, actually. Like there are 8 billion people. Let's say there's more than that for sentient beings, but just talking about human beings, 8 billion people, there's not 8 billion true natures or true realities in Buddhism specifically. We might believe that ourselves personally, but in Buddhism, it's not presented that there are 8 billion unique realities or 8 billion unique dharmas, so to speak. There's actually only one. And so, bending everyone, all 8 billion, to that one reality requires different methods of convincing. And some of those methods are upaya, right? They are metaphor and simile and trippy actions like covering the sky and lotuses. And other ones are also preaching and educating, doing religious work, as we would think of it in the modern era in the West. And so, in that case, it kind of is functioning as a like, we say this is true so much that it actually becomes true, if that makes sense. I really don't like that. That sets off a lot of alarm bells in my head. Uh, like that, like any doctrine that comes down to saying, like, this is reductionist, and I don't mean to imply that this is what Buddhism is actually saying, but this section of, you know, saying it's true makes it true really pushes the wrong buttons for me. Like, that sounds bad and abusable to me. It kind of is. It's also a small part of a gigantic religion, and the further context elsewhere in that religion reduces that bad vibe somewhat. Yeah, and we should also talk about, too, like, the Buddha is omniscient and omnipotent, and we talk about how it's not correct to say that he is the god, that Buddha is the god of Buddhism, because there's a lot of Buddhas, and because he doesn't claim to be a deity in that sense, and because the typical characteristics of like a Western Judeo-Christian god don't fit over him, or any other kind of English language god we can think of. They don't really fit over what he is and was and so on. But if he's omniscient and omnipotent, I mean, that's that's a lot, right? That's kind of close to it. And so, it's it's unfortunate that we find these things, but sometimes we are reminded that we are talking 
about a religion, and religion has has very common components and elements across time and space. Right. I think that's part of what's setting me off is that I'm I've seen similar things in Western Christianity that are quite ugly. And this kind of thing does get abused. I mean, we've talked about how upaya is used to justify morally dubious, at best, morally reprehensible, at worst, actions done by this quote-unquote hidden bodhisattva, right? Because they theoretically did the thing, no matter how bad it was, to teach, to lead this person to enlightenment or to witness enlightenment so that everybody else could witness enlightenment or something like that. This is something that is definitely not passive. There's an element here of trust that, okay, the Buddha is a fully realized Buddha. He's omniscient and omnipotent, and he has cultivated generosity and compassion and nonviolence and so on and so forth, such that he himself or Buddhas themselves would never do stuff like that. But it gets kind of bent and weird, especially as later Mahayana develops and goes on, right? I mean, we're talking about, broadly speaking, when we talk about Mahayana Buddhism, Zen Buddhism is a part of that. And Zen Buddhism gets bent significantly during wartime, for example, to support the imperial state of Japan in World War II and justify religiously all of the atrocities that were going on during that time period. So this is something that can absolutely be harnessed for bad. And that's also, as we've said before, not a critique that's unique to Buddhism at right. all. So... Last thing I wanted to talk a bit about, I'm going to try this name, it's a long one, Sada Pramukhtarashmi. Sada Pramukhtarashmi. That's right. That is a Buddha that came before Shakyamuni. Mm-hmm. So what do we know about this guy? Yeah, so in this scheme, in this cosmology, there's theoretically a straight line in time you can't really think of it like a straight line in time, by the way. That's just kind of how we unenlightened beings understand it. But there's a straight line in time sequentially of different Buddhas who preach and then their teaching is forgotten and then the next one comes, right? The next one after Shakyamuni, like we've talked about, is going to be Maitreya. And Sada Pramuta Rashmi is one from the distant past. And so not all of these Buddhas have stories associated with them, but some of them do. Maitreya has a lot attributed to him. And for example, the Buddha right before Shakyamuni has a lot of stories about him and the Buddha that taught Amida when he was still a bodhisattva named Dharmakara. He had a lot of stories associated with him. So these Buddhas do exist in the texts, but some of them are just named in one. And in this case, I think that Sadapramutarashmi is also one of these previous Buddhas from a previous age who is only named in this text. It's totally believable to me because I have Googled that name and Google doesn't even attempt. It's just like, we have no idea what you're talking about. Especially since it's such a long name. It just, yeah, it doesn't, it's like, there's no results at, at all. Yeah. And if they, if he were talked about extensively in other sutras, I would presume that his Googling his name would bring at least some of them up. So I'm willing to believe that this is another figure that only lives in this text. So. Sadaprabhuktarashmi is brought up because um, earlier, like Vajramati, another the figure we were talking about earlier, who also only lives in this text, the Buddha identifies Vajramati as an audience member in the previous sermon. 
And in that previous sermon, it is said that there are only four figures who did not obtain enlightenment after hearing it. Uh, one of them being Vajramati. I remember another one was Avalokiteshvara. Other than Vajramati, the, the other three were figures that we've seen before and had come up elsewhere. So I get the narrative reason they don't achieve enlightenment. It's because they need to still be around to be bodhisattvas now. But I guess, and again, this is me being an engineer and asking questions that religion's not going to give me. Uh, is there a reason or an explanation for why these four did not achieve full enlightenment at that point? There is, and it kind of specifically relates to the sometimes circular nature of these sermons. So what this question gets to is kind of the heart of the development of Mahayana doctrine. The development of Mahayana doctrine is pointed towards answering the question of what is to be done after Shakyamuni Buddha passes away. The theory is that he's the one who's leading us all to enlightenment because he's the one who has achieved enlightenment in our lifetime, in our world, in our existence. And so once he's gone, then it's almost like we're all kind of blindly grasping for the teaching and we have no way of knowing if we're on the right track or not. And so those who author these texts, which they likely did so long after the death of the historical Buddha, if he ever really existed, I believe that he did really exist and that his remains really are entombed in Nepal and North Northeast India and so on and so forth. But of course, there's always the chance that he is not there, that those remains are not his. Anyways, the authors of these texts after he passed away were trying to close that loop so that individuals could actually go and become enlightened and achieve fully realized Buddhahood in the absence of a Buddha who could kind of point them in the right direction. And so the ways that they crafted that obviously relate to this password method that I was talking about before, right? As opposed to the brute force method. But what they also do is a circular reasoning device that exists within the text themselves. So in the Lotus Sutra, whenever we continue to read and discuss chapters from that, we will see that it frequently says, if you believe the teaching of the Lotus Sutra, then you will become a fully realized Buddha. Because the teaching of the Lotus Sutra is that you'll become a fully realized Buddha. And how will you become a fully realized Buddha? if you believe the teaching of the Lotus Sutra. Do you see the circle that we're kind of going around in here? Yeah. That's not even a very big circle. It's a pretty easy to see one. Yeah, it's not a big circle at all. And the same circle exists in a ton of these texts. Now, in Western philosophy, we very frequently critique circular reasoning because it feeds itself and because it can't be supported by anything else and so on and so forth. Let's hold that aside for a moment, right? Because that's not something that we can really fairly level against these texts given their function and given what is going on doctrinally speaking in these. So let's hold that aside and we'll come back to it. In these texts, the teaching is essentially you have a Tathagata within you and the only way to realize that Tathagata within you is to believe that you have a Tathagata within you. And if you don't believe that you have a Tathagata within you, then you don't have one and you won't realize one. And so the way that you will realize one is if you believe that it's there and if you 
meditate, study, practice, and realize that it's there by believing that you have one. So the circle still exists. It's still present in this text. And the easy answer to why these four characters did not attain enlightenment in the past is because they didn't believe in the circle. And the reasoning for why they didn't, it could be a narrative reason, it could be a religious reason, a scriptural reason, right? Maybe the idea was like, okay, they didn't believe it just so that they could demonstrate what happens when you don't believe it, right? Right. That makes sense with everything else we've learned about of this religion, actually. Yeah. So, in that case, they have they have to hear it again, and they have to be reminded that they didn't believe it before, and you know, you didn't believe it before, see what happens. And so, the, the idea is like, if you just believe that you have the thing, then you will have the thing. I see. Okay, that makes sense. Or rather, it's consistent with all the logic being put here. Like, it's inter- it, it makes sense internally. And that kind of speaks to the question you were asking earlier about, like, how do I actually see it? Because you can't actually see it unless you are a fully realized Buddha, you have to believe the Buddha at his word that it is there because he is a fully realized Buddha. You have to kind of trust his omniscience, so to speak. And you have to kind of have a little bit of faith that it's there. And that faith will then be paid back, so to speak. That trust will be fulfilled, so to speak, whenever you do become theoretically a fully realized Buddha, because then you'll see that you had it and that the Buddha was right, and it'll reify the teaching to you. That's what the bent of all this is, right? This text fits into a corpus of literature whose entire aim is to create more Buddhas, right? You want to create more Buddhas that go on and continue to preach more Dharma to more sentient beings. That way more sentient beings get saved, and that way more Buddhas get produced because we've just lost the one that we have historically recently at the time of the authoring of this text and other texts like it. So, the idea is to keep the Dharma wheel spinning, if we're going to use the metaphor from like the first sermon. We want to keep these teachings being circulated over and over and over again, and one way that we make that make sense, one way that we make it possible to keep that going, is to say that all sentient beings can realize this tathagata they have within them as long as they believe that it's there and as long as they practice the bodhisattva perfections and so on and so forth. All right. That covers the points I wanted to get to. Is there anything I missed that you want to get to? I wanted to note also in this translation that the defilements that the Buddha talks about, the rotted lotus, the junk that covers up the gold nugget, and so on and so forth, these are all regarded, according to the text, as accidental. This is the very first time that we actually see something like this. If the question leveled towards the Buddha is, why is samsara like it is? Then, of course, he can go into a sermon about dependent origination, right? The 12 links of Pratitya Samutpada saying that samsara exists originally due to ignorance, right? But if we ask, why does ignorance exist? Then the answer that Shakyamuni is providing in this text is that it's accidental. The Buddha is saying that samsara is marked by defilement entirely by accident. And, you know, like, I wish I could tell you that there's other texts to support this, and there's interpretation in other texts that will help us understand this, but this is actually one of the only times that we see this description of samsara, this description of the cause of ignorance, in the sutras. And so it's not ever really been thoroughly explained, to me at least, except to say that no living being desires ignorance and the defilement that results in their figurative heart of hearts, but rather they have fallen into delusion 
through a skewed presentation of the data given to them by samsaric existence. So it's not anyone's fault, really. It's just how things are, and we never really get the further explanation of why that's the case. Right, because any other answers might have to involve like a creation story. And we know that the Buddha is famously hesitant to talk about creation stories, right? What is the point in time that the universe was created and how the Buddha will say stuff like, that's not really my concern. You shouldn't be concerned about that. Let's not talk about that, right? And so, because this all happened by accident, that's the only kind of way I think that the Buddha can answer that question without having to do a creation myth for all of Buddhism. The last thing that I want to mention really quickly before we cut off is in this text, we are presented with a self-powered, individualized, and self-motivated type of awakening. So this is something that you have to do for yourself. You have to believe this for yourself, and you have to preach this and teach this and understand this and recite this so that you and those around you, through your own actions, believe in the teaching that it holds within it. We should have that in our minds whenever we come back to reading more Pure Land texts, especially from Japan. And we should keep that in our minds when talking about other schools of Buddhism, because this distinction between self-power and other power becomes very, very important whenever we're talking about the development of Mahayana schools in East Asia. Are you saving yourself through your own power, through your own actions, through your own exertions on the path? as this text is telling you to do? Or are you being saved by somebody else? Are you being saved by Amida because of the thorough and complete nature of his vow? Are you being saved by imploring these Buddhas through offerings and rituals to save you? Or are, is, that, is that actually real? Is that any actual kind of instrumental view of awakening? Or is that something that's actually happening? This text would say that the individual self-power, self-motivated belief and self-powered actions are superior to rituals and offerings that are done without any real belief or feeling. There is a community of Buddhists out there. I would say that this constitutes actually the vast majority of East Asian Buddhists in the modern day who do offerings and rituals on an annual or otherwise periodic basis at temples and shrines but they don't actually know what's going on. They don't know who they are making offerings to or why or how that fits into the Buddhist or other religious cosmology. And in that case, this text is saying that that is below actual informed, mindful self-exertions on the path of enlightenment. It's an interesting contrast because on the one hand, the Mahayana ideal is the Bodhisattva path, but the self-motivated, self-actualized path is the Arhat, isn't it? Like those, I couldn't really say, oh, I'm a Bodhisattva now. Like there's qualifications that go into that that I simply don't meet. But I could go, like, if I weren't, you know, physically wrecked, I could conceivably go for the path of a monk. And that feels a lot more self-motivated and self-actualized than relying on the mercy of a bodhisattva. Right. Well, in part, this has to do with like, how do you get started on the path versus how do you kind of proceed on your own, right? Someone or something 
in both cases, the Arhat or the Bodhisattva path, they have to lead you to water. But theoretically, you have to be the one that drinks it. And these texts are trying to prescribe a way that you drink it rather than, or I guess I should say they're prescribing a way for you to drink it that is, in their view, superior to all other ways of drinking it. And so they're engaging with the Arhat path, not on this level of which one is based solely on the mercy of the Bodhisattva and which one is all self-motivated action. What they're leveling actually is like, should you do either path by yourself or should you do it just through blind faith? Does that make sense? So the Arhat path does not actually fall one way or the other into this category because there's the Arhat path, which is based solely on like, I'm hedging my bets and I think that, you know, this is the most likely to save me versus I'm doing this because I believe that enlightenment is actually a worthwhile thing to do. And the same is true of the Bodhisattva path. I'm doing the Bodhisattva path because, because I believe that it'll actually work. It'll actually save me and all sentient beings versus I'm doing the Bodhisattva path because everyone around me is doing it or because I've been doing, my family's been doing it for generations or something like that. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, it does make sense. And that addresses my criticism well. Like that was me, I think, mixing up my metaphors a bit too much, which is, I suspect, an easy thing to do. Like the sutras consist entirely of similes and metaphors. So I just got wires crossed a little bit on that one, I guess. And they will continue to be only metaphors and similes in the Mahayana tradition. It all yeah. turns so narrative and so confusing at times. Well, I like an occasional confusing narrative, so I'm up for hearing more about this. Me too. This has been our reading and discussion of the Tathagatagarbha Sutra. I hope that you've enjoyed. As do I. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. See you next time. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and voice of hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of hermit. And this has been Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com, or find us on Mastodon at brightbuddhism at mstdn.party. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you.